Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving Sunday. We uh, continue to give thanks, don't we? Uh, this morning I was thinking I am thankful for God's Word, that it is living and active, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, meaning I don't have to do that. Um, I can rely on God's Word to do that for me, um, and you don't have to rely on me to do that for you. But this morning I want to take our passage in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. We've been going through the book of Mark, and we want to look at how Mark takes two sections. One is kind of completing his ministry in Galilee of preaching, and then the next section is his going beyond Galilee and sending out the twelve as his representatives. And our purpose here this morning is to see Christ's compassion in calling sinners to himself in that day as well as this day, being careful to respond to God's word and works with receptive and believing hearts in worship. You see my outline there, I've really just taken a few points in the passage here and really want to focus on those key areas. Um, Mark 6, verses 1 through 6a is the conclusion of Christ's ministry in Galilee. It kind of answers the question previously, who then is this Jesus? And so Mark has been answering that. And then going forward in Mark 6, 6b through 13, it's the beginning of Christ's ministry beyond Galilee, sending out the twelve, giving them his authority. So let's read our passage, and uh, we'll jump into this. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belt, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We're going to look at your response to God's word. How do we respond to God's word? And in this passage, the the key here is that time when the people of Nazareth had an opportunity to hear the truth of God's word and they began asking those questions and they took offense at Jesus. Not the right response. 
Why are you offended? Have you ever thought about that? I know we get offended. We get offended really easy, right? But why? Often it's because of something someone did or didn't do, and it was insensitive, or something someone said or didn't say that was insensitive. But have you ever considered that offense also comes from our own blindness and hardness of heart, specifically when we're talking about God's word? But when you get offended, you stop and say, why am I offended? Is this legitimate? Do I have a right to be offended? And then do you take the right steps in that offense? You see, when we are offended, it hinders us. It becomes a stumbling block for us from obedience and doing what God is calling us to do. And that is what happened to the people of Nazareth. They knew Jesus. There was familiarity. And that caused them to take offense and to be blinded. They had a hard heart. And it's difficult to see and admit that in ourselves. Our first point here is the astonishing truth of Jesus' words. When Jesus came to his hometown, he probably came to visit family, but it says that he was in his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? So as was his custom, he ordinarily traveled, and on the Sabbath he went to the synagogue. And that's a message in and of itself, right? Um, How careful are we to have regular time in worship? Um, And whether you see Luke 4 as a separate account or as a previous visit to Nazareth, if you see that as a previous visit, well, they tried killing him, okay? They tried throwing him off a cliff for what he was saying. And yet, he still came to church, even though they tried to kill him. But his words consisted, what was so astonishing about his words? They consisted of the preaching of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God. We see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. This is what he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You say, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of himself. It is a statement of his lordship, his messianic right, and the call to repent of their sin. And so the, the message here was, obey me. I am the Messiah, the promised one from the Father. I have the authority. And so his words consisted of the preaching of the good news. Second, his words, they were in and of itself his purpose in being there. That is why he came to man. We see his, his answer in Mark chapter 1 again. When the crowds were looking for him, his disciples came to him and said, you're needed. And the crowds, Jesus recognized, were looking for physical healing. But what did he say? He knew their greatest needs was spiritual healing. And so he said, Let us go on to other villages so that I can preach, for this is why I have come. So his purpose was to present the gospel, to preach it, and he he had a messianic prophecy that outlined what it was that the people should have been expecting. From Isaiah chapter 61, we see some of his purpose in him being there. It says that, The Messiah would preach the gospel to the poor, the spiritually destitute, the morally bankrupt, the 
the desperate in life, those who saw life with very little reason for hope. And yet the gospel shines as a beacon of good news to those who are contrite. So those who are spiritually poor, the Messiah came to preach the gospel to them. Second, the Messiah would proclaim release or forgiveness to the captives. Those held prisoner by sin would be freed by the paying of the penalty for their violation of God's law. We sing about this in Charles Wesley's song, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. It says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So his purpose was to proclaim release or forgiveness to those captive by sin. Third, the Messiah would provide recovery of sight to the blind, those in darkness who needed, as Luke described in Luke chapter 1, the sunrise from on high, the dawn, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the Messiah would provide recovery of sight to the blind. And fourth, the Messiah would set free those who are oppressed, those who are overwhelmed by life's painful circumstances brought on by the wearying burden of sin. Jesus offers to relieve that burden. In Matthew 11, he promised, Come to me, all you who are weary. I will give you rest. Do you see your need? Do you see how the Messiah promises to take care of that need? The people were astonished because they saw his word and that was his purpose in coming. But his words were also spoken with authority. It says in chapter 1, verse 21, not as the scribes. So we've, we've gone over this passage already, but basically this is basically explaining that Jesus did not rely on other rabbis or other teachers' words. You didn't have Jesus standing up there and quoting a quote from another quote of a rabbi, as was the custom of the scribes, right? Jesus began his teaching with, I say to you. So he's saying, I am the authority. And so his words were spoken with authority. His words were also full of wisdom. We see that right here in chapter 2 as, as Mark describes that people were astonished and asked, what wisdom is this? So the people recognized the very wisdom in what he was saying. They couldn't argue with his words. They had to acknowledge that his words carried extraordinary insight into life experiences. His words, in other words, hit home to them in a very personal way. And it showed Jesus' compassion in sharing his knowledge, experience, and understanding for his glory and their good. And perhaps Mark was referring to Isaiah's prophecy where he spoke of the Holy Spirit resting on the Messiah and giving him wisdom. The people would have been picking up on this. And they had to acknowledge his words were full of wisdom. His words were also from God. John the Baptist had prepared the way. He had been teaching this. He had been telling the people to prepare the people for this truth that the Messiah would be from God and his words and his message was from God. We see this in John chapter 3, verses 30 through 36. I'll turn there real quick. It says that John preached, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who has come from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And he says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. So those very words he spoke were from God. And finally, we see that his words are for today and for us, and they offer us hope, redemption, and forgiveness, just as they did then. Forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. I was listening to the radio recently and uh, I heard about this new uh, movement in Europe. The European Union is considering adding another human right. We, we have rights, right? We have the Bill of Rights, constitutional rights. Each country kind of decides what human rights are. And this is an interesting right. They want to add the right to be forgotten. It sounds negative, right? But they described it as the desire of individuals to determine the development of their lives in an autonomous way without perpetually or periodically being stigmatized as a consequence of a specific action performed in the past. All of that to say they want the right to do whatever they want and not pay consequences. Basically, everything gets erased. Their history does not make them pay the consequences of their actions. And I thought, what a misguided way to seek peace. You know, whether it was something that caused controversy that they want disappeared, something on their history. And I thought, the right to be forgotten. What about the right to be forgiven? I think that is the way God intended for us to have peace with one another as well as with God. We don't deserve that right. Let me be clear about that. But Christ has given us that right. And so the big thought here about his words and how people were astonished at his words and the wisdom of it says the big thought here is that Jesus' words, the gospel, were astonishing and demanded a response. The same is true today. I want us to understand that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is demanding repentance and belief in him. In verse 2, we see also that they were astonished not just by the wisdom of his words, but also they asked, from where are these such mighty at works that are performed by his hands? And so the second point is the mighty demonstration of Jesus' works. People had been recognizing the mighty works of Jesus as we have studied in Mark previously. We, we talked about calming the storm, about his miracles, authority over death, authority over demons, Authority over destruction. Look at that, it was three Ds right there. And people had recognized that to the point where it says in Mark that immediately, right, his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. So people recognized his mighty works. And all of the things that describe his works, I think, fall down to this. His works attested to the truth of his words or the gospel, Right? Miracles validate the messenger in order to validate the message. And the works of Christ, his actions, attested to the truth of his word. 
In other words, that he was indeed the Messiah. He was who he said he was. The evidence of Jesus' power was clear. His miracles were unlike anything they had seen. Witnesses of his mighty works could not help but recognize his authority over all. And Jesus himself claimed that his authority and his mighty works came from God. He said in John chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And then later in John 14, 10, he says, Do not believe, you do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And so there's a correlation between words and works. Wisdom and might. We see that in the Old Testament through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. And so the big thought here about his works is that Jesus' works were mighty and attested to the truth of his word. And the same is true today. The work of Jesus Christ demands repentance and belief in him. And we're speaking specifically about the work of the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But do you recognize also that every day God is at work in you and that that work attests to his word? I hope you see that. And I hope that you recognize that it demands repentance and belief in him. Then we see between verses 2 and 3 here, there's a little shift in the questions. And I, and I think this has to do with the fact that this was his hometown. People were familiar with him. They were beginning to ask the right questions, asking about the origin. This was from God. The message was true. There was evidence that he was the Messiah through his works. But then they go from critical of him to even being disparaging of him in their questions. They ask in verse 3, suddenly, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So their questions now suddenly became personal, kind of more like they suddenly realized, wait a second, we know this man. He's just like us. He's common. He's a carpenter, a builder. And so they began to have that familiarity become a stumbling block. And like the seeds that fall on the wayside that the birds of the air devour, they reject the message of Jesus. And it says that because of that, they were offended, even scandalized. So that familiarity or that that thinking that there's nothing special to see here came even to the point where they were looking at his family and the fact that they called him the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us too? They were pointing out even the fact that many of them saw his birth as being illegitimate, pointing out that Mary gave birth to Jesus, and so there was scandal there even. And so they became offended. That word actually means to be scandalized or caused to stumble. And we know that about God's word and the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that Christ is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. 
And until you face your sin in penitence and repent, you too will take offense at the gospel. And so Jesus is calling for repentance. And the rejection here at Nazareth represents Israel's unbelief and blindness. Their hearts were hard and unreceptive. And they refused the good news of the gospel. This is both a picture of what the disciples would soon experience themselves as representatives of Christ in presenting the gospel, as well as what a future believers sent out with the gospel would face as they shared that good news. But also it serves as a warning to all who hear the good news of Christ. It's a warning that Jesus demands worship from a repentant and believing heart. And so this passage here where the people's response was negative it was rejecting the gospel because of their hard hearts i hope it makes you consider is my heart being prepared is my heart being humble open receptive to the teaching of god's word the truth of it as hard as it is for me to hear sometimes the people did not lack the truth they simply rejected it to the point where it doesn't make sense except to say that they willingly denied the truth. If you can follow the reasoning here, C.S. Lewis says, if Jesus is not the Son of God, he is a lunatic. If his words are not the truth, he is a liar. If his power is not given by God, he is in league with the devil. It's irrational because they knew he was not in league with the devil. They saw his works. They knew that his power had to be from God, and so he couldn't have been a liar, that his words were true, and if his words were true, he wasn't a lunatic, he was the Son of God. And why is it that God's word is resented? And I want to ask you this this morning. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you taken God's word, the truth of it, and repented and believed in it? Or are you still resenting it a little? Are you too familiar with Jesus? That sounds odd, right? To say, can you be too familiar with Jesus? And this means to the point where you know a lot about Jesus, but you are so familiar with God's word and the stories, and that's all you're interested in is, is gaining that knowledge, but not having that personal, intimate relationship with Christ. But God's word is resented because... People find it hard to acknowledge themselves as spiritually poor, bound, blind, and oppressed because of sin. They find it hard because you have to deny your self-righteousness. You have to confess your need. You have to surrender your will. And you have to leave darkness for light. These are hard things to do to the point where often people will reject the truth. And at this point it says that Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. This was just a, a saying that pointed out that the Old Testament prophets as well were, were not honored or not listened to among the people who knew them. And it says, now he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And this is not that Jesus had a lack of supernatural power to do the miracles in Nazareth but he chose to withhold them where there was willing unbelief. And because of that, it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. It's such a simple choice, right? 
choose life. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20, we see where God is teaching the children of Israel and he's begging them to choose good, choose blessing. And he says, the word is near to you. It's on your lips, it's on your heart. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And he doesn't just leave it out there with closed hands trying to guess which one is which. He says, here, choose life. It's right there in front of you. And that's the same feeling Jesus had. He was marveling. at The word could possibly be flabbergasted. How is it that people cannot and will not choose life? This reminds me, I was telling Harold Tilly earlier this morning that uh, we have ducks. I don't know if this is a staff thing. I know Eric has, has had ducks. But uh, we have chickens also, and chickens know what are good for them. They know what's good for them. The evening comes, they head off to the coop, they want to be safe, they know where to go to stay up off the ground, away from predators. Ducks do not know what is good for them. They wander around in the middle of the night looking for that next mud puddle or that next thing to eat. Um, they know where the food comes from, right? So they're, 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 they like to stay close, but they don't want to get too close. They're a little distrusting. And so at night when we're trying to get them into the coop, it's kind of a little bit of a comedy because we have to bait them in with food and yet we can't get too close to the door because they're unwilling to get too close to us. And so it's hard to get the food in the door and still stay out of the way enough for them to enter. And often several of them will just stay away. And so several times we've just, thrown the food at them and gone off and left them out in the middle of the night, risking what is possible death by coyote, possum, or raccoon. But the ducks don't know better, and it's so frustrating because you want to explain to them that this is good, this is life, this is helpful to you. And so, in the same way, Familiarity can cause us to stumble. All unbelief is a matter of will. F.B. Meyer wrote, Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. And so I ask you, are you too familiar with Jesus that you do not recognize his kingship in your life? You know much about him but fail to submit to him? The big thought here in this third section here is that the appropriate and good response to Jesus' word and work is worship and obedience from a receptive and humble heart. That is what the people of Nazareth needed The same is true today. The worship of Christ is repentance and belief in Him. So in our passage, He went about the villages in a circuit teaching and He called the twelve to Himself. So we get now the conclusion of that previous passage was in verse 6. Now He is in verse 7 going to send out the twelve 
as apostles or those being sent. So he calls them to himself and he sends them out, giving them authority beyond Galilee. Basically, the training is over, he's saying. Now it's time to get dirty, get involved. And the disciples, they were sent out as Jesus' representatives despite rejection that they had just witnessed to preach repentance. Nazareth, you could say, was a living example to the disciples of what to expect in response to the gospel. That some would respond in faith, but many would not. Choosing instead to be held in sin under hell's condemnation through unbelief. As amazing as that is. And so he called the twelve and commanded them. And that word there is this instruction that Jesus gave is a term used to charge someone with a binding command or directive of which failure or disregard meant severe consequences. This was placed upon you. And so Jesus does the same to the twelve and he places upon them this responsibility to go and take the good news. MacArthur explains the implications for us today. He says, when called of the Lord, we have no choice but to respond. God sets the standards and gives the orders. Our responsibility is to obey. And in a general sense, every believer is commissioned by the Lord and is bound to obey his call to go and present him to the world. Not only are we called to share the gospel with our neighborhoods, nations, and the next generation, we're called to to listen to God's everyday instruction and directive in doing that. And so the disciples here are an example of how to respond to his word and his work. They were called and they obeyed, extending Jesus' ministry beyond Galilee by Jesus' authority and power, not relying on their own. In Jesus' instructions here, it says, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belt, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. He's saying, rely on the provision of the Father. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And the disciples had to learn this through experience. Our response must involve complete obedience and dependence on the Father's provision. Are you listening to his call in your life? I uh, recently traveled and flying from St. Louis to Miami, I, I, I ran across this American Airlines employee. And I was uh, just, I look at name tags, just curious to see what people's names are. Well, on his name tag, there was no name, but slipped inside was a handwritten note. And it said, what is God calling you to do? That was it. And I thought, wow, what a neat thought. In the middle of an airport, someone is asking me, what has God called me to do? Are we listening to God's call on our lives? Are we careful to hear his word? It says, to shake the dust from under your feet. This is Jesus' command. And this was just a, a reference to a literal practice the Jews had of removing foreign dust from their feet when they were crossing back over into their land. 
in a sense it was saying, my responsibility is complete. It is now on you to take what you have heard and to respond. And so it was a lesson to the disciples that some would believe, others would not. And today, the good news that we preach is that Jesus spoke astonishing words of compassion and mercy to a a wicked, scandalized sinner like me, like you, and that he attested to the truth of that word with the mighty work of taking upon himself the punishment for our sin through a cruel death on the cross, offering us righteousness, and that he rose from the grave, conquering death, establishing his authority over all and his right as Lord of your life. And the good news in Psalm 145, 18, is the promise that the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So Jesus' word and his work was for our response to worship him as the promised Messiah. So I want to ask you, how will you respond? If you're a believer, I hope you will respond in thanksgiving and worship and praise and obedience. If you have not trusted in Christ, I hope you hear Jesus' word, repent and believe. So I invite you this morning, let's worship him today at the remainder of our time in a response to his astonishing words and his mighty works for his glory and our good. Let's do this day in and day out. Consider his word, consider his work in your life and worship him. I'm going to close in prayer out of Psalm 119 and I'm going to invite Jeff to come back up and lead us in a few songs of worship in closing to give you time to meditate, to respond, and to think about what is God calling you to do? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize our need. And as Michael prayed earlier this morning, we see you as the one to provide. And so we ask this morning out of Psalm 119 that you would revive us according to your word. Strengthen us according to your word. Let your mercies come also to us, O Lord. Your salvation according to your word. Be merciful to us according to your word. We acknowledge that you have dealt well with us, O Lord, according to your word. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for our comfort according to your word. Revive us, O Lord, according to your word. Uphold us according to your word. Revive us again according to your word. Give us understanding according to your word and deliver us according to your word. So our lips shall utter praise. Let's sing.